It's good to look out at all of you and to, to be with you and to see you. Uh, we're not starting, uh, Matt mentioned this earlier, we're starting our Advent series uh, in two weeks. It's not next week, but it'll be the week after that. That's the, the true first Sunday of Advent this year. Uh, usually, it's on the, um, <clears throat> usually it's on the weekend of Thanksgiving, but this year it comes a week later, which is good news for all of us. It means we get to explore uh, a couple of more questions that Jesus asked before we begin the Advent series. And this morning... We're back in Matthew, Matthew chapter 14, and this question comes in the middle of a storm. It's like the perfect time to ask a question, right? This comes in the middle of a storm while Jesus is holding Peter's hand, and he's pulling him out of the water, and he's saving him from a certain death. And that's when Jesus asks a question that I think that we could all resonate with. He asks the question, why did you doubt? This is Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Hear the word of the Lord. Immediately, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go therefore, go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone, but by the But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be among us now, just as you have already been throughout the service. I pray that you would move in a particular way as we hear from your word. pray that you would apply it to our hearts, that you would tell us the story again of Jesus coming to rescue us. And I pray that you would attend to us in our doubts and in our uncertainty and in our weakness. I pray that you would make Jesus all the more beautiful, all the more radiant, and all the more powerful to us. I pray that you would help me, uh, your servant, to love these friends well and to honor you with the words that I say. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis 15 tells a story of God making a promise to Abraham. He takes Abraham out for a walk at night and he gestures to the night sky and he says, try to count these stars. And then he tells him, one day your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the night sky. Now that's a beautiful promise. 
But even more than that, it's a sacred promise. It's actually a covenantal commitment promise that God was making to Abraham. And then as years go by, as uh, years pass, what we find is that Abraham and Sarah find this promise of God a little more hard to believe. You see, it was, a, it was an almost an unbelievable promise because they were both already advanced in years and they were still childless at the time. And every year that passed, it just seemed even more unlikely that God would make good on his promise. And a couple chapters later, we think there's about 14 or 15 years, as the text says. It says Abraham is about 100 years old. Sarah is about 90 years old. And God comes to them again, and he says, that promise I made you, I still intend on keeping it. it that promise is still good. And you can see the disbelief in Abraham and Sarah's hearts when they laugh. In fact, Abraham laughs in front of God himself. Abraham laughs when God says this to Abraham. Sarah was a little more circumspect. The text says that she actually laughed to herself. She didn't want anybody to hear. But God did hear, and he challenged her. He said, is anything too hard for me to do? And she said, I I didn't laugh. And he said, no, you did laugh. I love that he did that. I love that he did that because he's telling her, Remember that you laughed. Remember that when I keep my promise to you, I want you to remember that time that you laughed. Time and time again, the Bible tells a story like this one, where God makes a promise to his people. And either because it's just unbelievable, or it's scary, or it's too good to be true, or because of the people's weakness, God's people respond with disbelief or doubt that this could ever be possible. That's the story of God's people in the wilderness years. God rescues his people, gets them out of Egypt and out of slavery, and is leading them to a land that he promised to them. And they begin to believe that he led them out to die, right? That's doubt, doubt in the face of God's promise. That's the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6, where God calls Gideon to serve in a particular way and in a very courageous way for the sake of God's people. And uh, and Gideon's like, why me? And, uh, And God says, don't be afraid. I will be with you wherever you go. In all that you do, I will prevail because I am with you. But even still, Gideon tests God twice by throwing a fleece on the ground. It was just so hard to believe that this could be true. And of course, what we see in this story is that it was true for Jesus' disciples. I mean, Jesus certainly names the doubt in Peter's heart. In fact, one of uh, Jesus' disciples was, uh, was actually had a nickname, Doubting Thomas. You know, that, and that story comes because Thomas just found it so hard to believe that it was possible that Jesus could have risen from the dead. I mean, nobody rises from the dead. And even when Thomas is in the same room as the risen Jesus, he still can't believe it. And so Jesus says what? Here, look at my hands, the nail-scarred hands, and put your hands in my side. And then Thomas could believe. You know, I'll I'll tell you, I I confess I never liked that nickname. Uh, Not because it's not true. It was certainly true. 
But it's but but it seems to me like the Bible is making the argument that Thomas isn't the only one who ever doubted God's promises. Yeah, in my experience, doubting who God is, that God could be as good as he says he is, uh, that his promises are true, is, is something that's just common to all of us. Either because the promise is just too radiant, too far-reaching, too wonderful, or because it feels like it's being betrayed by our experiences in the world or by what we see. And that's what, that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about how Jesus attends to the doubt in his disciples, both in what they're experiencing and in what they see. Let's start by talking about their experience. What are, what are they experiencing here in this passage? There's a claim that runs throughout this passage, just kind of embedded in it. You, you might not have, uh, it might not have stood out right away, but once you start looking for it, you, it, it's kind of all over from beginning to the end of the passage. And it's this claim that Jesus operates with real sovereign power. And not just because he made the wind cease or because he was walking on water. He has this commanding presence about him. It begins in verse 22. This is strong language. He's immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go with him to the other side. That, that word could mean commanded. It could mean compelled. He is like forcing them to get into a boat and go to the other side of the lake. Uh, later, um, it, uh, later, it says he dismissed the crowd. And to understand how hard this might have been, you have to understand that Jesus has been looking for solitude for a couple of chapters now. There are actually a couple of failed attempts already where he went off to try to be alone with his father, to get rest, to, to, to spend time with his heavenly father, and the crowd just keeps chasing him down. They're, they're, really, uh, they're, they're, they're really persistent in trying to constantly get Jesus' attention. And so the crowd has obviously made itself, him, itself hard, to, hard to dismiss, and he is like forcefully sending them away. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, oh, and it's picked up, in Peter's words in verse 29, uh, when Peter calls out to Jesus from the boat, he says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. You see that this is like asking for or receiving or asking for marching orders uh, that, that Peter's using here. And so what we're seeing is that at this point in Jesus's ministry, people are responding to Jesus's words, not just with curiosity, but with obedience. To them, he's not just worthy of their respect, he's actually worthy of their devotion. And that's because at this point, they have seen him demonstrate sovereign power in any number of ways, in his teaching and in his actions. By now, they know that he is something other, that he commands the fish of the sea, that he commands the power of the storm, his words cast out illnesses and demons, and his words even raise people from the dead. And yet, even when Jesus has repeatedly demonstrated the sovereignty, what we see 
is that fear is something that's just never far away for his disciples. Remember that a lot of these men had grown up around the sea, had grown up in towns that surrounded the sea. Some of them worked on the water. Many of them, uh, many of them I could imagine, probably grew up hearing stories of tragedies that happened on the sea. So they were really familiar with the, with the power of the sea and how dangerous it could be at times. And here they are in uh, verse 24. It says that they are a long way from land. They are beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. Now, if you stop and look at that sentence, you're actually going to see a kind of graphic portrayal of dire circumstances. A long way from land, John talks about many stadia. Uh, it's obvious that he's with, still within eyesight, of uh, that the disciples are still within eyesight of Jesus on top of a mountain. The, just the best guesses that we can make is that the disciples are about halfway across the sea at night, about a six-mile journey, I think they're about three miles across at that point. So they're, they're like in the middle of nowhere. Help is not anywhere near them. Uh, and then it says they're beaten by the waves. Uh, that word beaten can also mean tossed. It can also mean tortured. What it's describing is the, uh, is the disciples being harassed by the waves. And then the wind was against them. Uh, they're moving from Gentile uh, country into, back into Israel. They're moving from east to west, and, uh, and there's a wind that's coming directly at them, which was really common during the rainy season, and it was known as a, uh, as a powerful and dangerous wind. But the, the, the words that Matthew uses here uh, against them is also a way that you could describe an enemy that is against you. And so it's almost personifying the, the actions of the wind here. It's saying that it is against them as an enemy is against them. It almost, the verse almost feels like the disciples are suffering a kind of personal attack on them by the storm. And if that's not scary enough, I think there's another element to this whole story that would be just terrifying. Because when you look at this, where is Jesus? Like where, where is Jesus? Do the disciples know where Jesus is? I mean, here they are in the fight of their lives. And they have no idea where Jesus is. Does he even know? Does he even know what they're going through? There's a story. Not a story. Uh, there's a song that I kept thinking of as I looked at this. Uh, as I looked at this passage, some of you know the name Gordon Lightfoot. He's a, a singer-songwriter. He's Canadian. I don't know why that matters, but it seems important. Um, he died earlier this year, and uh, and I was having this debate with a couple of guys before the service. If it's an overstatement, it's not an overstatement by much to say that he's one of the greatest songwriters in, in recent memory. But in 1976, he wrote a song called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And, uh, and one of his gifts was just he could, tell, he could tell an amazing story through song. And if you've heard this song, you've prob- you probably haven't stopped hearing it. I mean, it just has this haunting melody that matches 
the lyrics of this terrible story of the shipping, uh, the shipping crew that died in a shipwreck in, uh, on Lake Superior a year prior in 1975. But in it, he asks this haunting question. He says, does anyone know? Oh gosh, this is hard. He asks, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? See, suffering is one thing, but what's truly terrifying is the fear of God's indifference. That's the fear. That's the fear. But what's the reality? What the disciples don't see is Jesus on a mountainside praying to the Father with a constant eye on them that they are never far from his attentive gaze. This Matthew doesn't name it in this passage, but in Mark's parallel passage, it says that Jesus saw that they were making their way painfully, and he came to them. You see, what they don't know is that Jesus has his attention on them constantly. He shows up, and they are terrified. And what does he say? He says, take heart, Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. Listen, the first thing I want you to hear this morning is Jesus saying to you, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Uh, By my count, Jesus says that phrase seven times in the book of Matthew. And he always says it during a time when fear seems to be warranted. He says, don't be afraid. You're going to be persecuted, but have no fear of them. Don't be afraid. God knows even the hairs on your head. You don't need to be afraid. When Jesus met Mary and Martha just after his resurrection outside the tomb, what did he say? His first words were, do not be afraid. Why don't we have to be afraid? Because of the first thing that he said. He said, it is I. When Jesus said, it is I, he was making a claim. He was making a claim about himself. Those words uh, could be translated literally, take heart, it is I am. Those are words that would have echoed in the ears of the disciples because this is the name that God uses for himself in the Old Testament, he calls himself the I am God. When, when uh, he called Moses to the, the profound and scary task of, of going to rescue God's pe- leading God's people out of slavery, Moses is like, why me? What, what, what is it about me? How, how, what is it about me that they would even listen to? And God says, Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, he says, tell them the I am has sent you. And Jesus appropriates these words over and over and over again. Seven times in the the book of John, Jesus says, I am, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gateway for the sheep. He says, I am what? I am the resurrection and the life. And now Jesus is saying, you don't need to be afraid. Why? Because I am with you. But there's nowhere you can go where I am not with you. I am with you 
in the most difficult places and I am with you in the most wonderful places. I am with you in the storms and the dark valleys and I am with you when you're beside still waters. Wherever you go, I am with you and you cannot shake me. No matter what your experience trains you to believe, at all times, Jesus is saying, you don't need to be afraid because I am with you. But what about what we see? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but often, often what we see almost feels like it betrays our ability to have confidence that God is indeed at work in the world as he says he is. Well, what did Peter see? Well, first of all, how about we talk about what Peter did? Does anybody find this curious? Like, is this a, uh, is this a, a rational response to what's happening in that moment? That, um, <laughs> that, uh, that there's this life-threatening storm. Everybody is afraid they're going to die. Uh, they think that there's a ghost coming at them. And Jesus says, it's me. And then Peter says, Lord, if, if it's really you, tell me to come to you. Like, what's going on there? Well, it wouldn't surprise you to hear that there is a theory, that there are actually a lot of theories going on with what's kind of going through Peter's mind in this passage. Uh, And they all range, uh, like the continuum on one side is I have no idea why Peter is thinking this. And on the other side, it's Peter thought it would be really cool. Like, that's the continuum uh, with everything in between. Uh, Calvin, John Calvin actually talks about this story and he says, Peter should have just stayed on the boat. Like he doesn't even try to explain it. He just says, Peter, Peter was being ridiculous. Uh, Matthew Henry uh, looks at this passage and he says that Jesus um, allowed Peter to walk and to sink so that, so as to have Peter check his self-confidence. That's, those are, those were his words. Now, I, I don't know about you. Uh, and you, you could find, you could probably come up with any theory that you wanted on this, but I just find those pretty unconvincing. Uh, they may be right. And I, I, I will always be afraid to disagree with some of these, you know, better, you know, really smart, informed people that have studied God's word for much longer than I have. But I just find it troubling. Uh, one, because of who Jesus is. Like, I don't see Jesus' invitation to Peter to come out and join him on the water as inauthentic or as some kind of trick that he's playing on Peter to teach him a lesson. I just don't think Jesus plays games with his people. But also because Peter actually asked Jesus for permission to come to him. He's actually asking Jesus. He, he's thought about it enough that he actually throws a question at Jesus before he does it. It tells me that he's actually acting, in, at least in some way, uh, rationally. Now, look, there are times where Peter is impulsive. There are times where he's overly self-confident. I'm just not sure this is one of them. And the fact that he's asking the question tells me that he's at least thinking about it before he does it. I can't say for sure, but my theory is that Peter just wants to be where Jesus is. That's what I think is going on here. That, that Peter feels like being in the boat is no safer than being anywhere else. And the safest place to be is just wherever Jesus is. That's what I think is going on with Peter. I, I, I'm actually, 
um, <clears throat> thinking about the story in John 21 where Peter hears uh, that Jesus is on the shore and he like puts his clothes on and throws himself out of the boat. Why? Because he just, he just wanted to be with Jesus. And I think there's something similar going on here. It's also helpful to know that the disciples at, at, by this point had been um, performing extraordinary acts through Jesus' power. It was a, just a few chapters ago that Jesus commissioned the disciples to go, to go out and proclaim the, the, that the kingdom was at hand. And he gave them power to heal people, to cast out demons, to, raise, to even to raise people from the dead. And there would have been no question in the disciples' mind whose power they were operating with when they did this. And so to Peter, it just doesn't seem all that scary a thing. He, he has seen up close just how powerful Jesus is and how much Jesus can protect them. So much so that he does demonstrate acts of courageous faith just by getting out of the boat in the first place. He just gets out of the boat and he starts to walk. Eyes on Jesus. And then what happens? Well, the passage says that, that when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Now, it helps to remember that the sea represents something terrible in the world. That it represents chaos and disorder and uncontrollable power. It can represent an enemy. And so when he saw the wind, what he was seeing was the you don't actually see the wind, but you always know if it's windy. He's seeing the effects of the wind. And he's feeling the power of the waves rolling underneath him. And he, he's feeling its force on him. And what did he do? He took his eyes off Jesus and started focusing on this terrible wind. So before I went to college... I spent some time painting houses, and uh, I didn't have that much experience with ladders. I had a little bit, but not that much. But when you paint houses, it means you're on a ladder every day. And, uh, and boy, the conditions of where you put that ladder can be, you know, I mean, it can be hit or miss, depending on the house that you're going to. And, uh, and so that was one of the first things that I was being trained to get used to, was just going up and down ladders. And I remember it was like my first day, it might have been my second day, and there was this guy that was training me. He said, look, when you go up a ladder, just keep your eyes on the spot that you're going to. Just like focus on that, and before you know it, you'll be there. But whatever you do, don't look down. Now, <clears throat> that's really good advice, okay? It would, have been, it, would have, it would also have been wise if I had, uh, uh, you know, actually listened to him. Because it, like, it's like you can't help it. You know, I get halfway up the ladder. I, I, in memory, I mean, it feels like I was really high up in the air. I probably wasn't. But I looked down, and what did I do? I just froze. You know, I just froze. Like, I, I realized just, I remember the, the ladder, like, shaking back and forth a little bit. And I realized just how vulnerable I was. And I think that's, there's something similar going on in Peter. What happened is he got a sense for just how powerful the storm was, and he lost sight of just how powerful Jesus was. And, and the turbulence of the storm did what? It led to a turbulence of his own heart. And so he begins to sink. But what's remarkable is there's no mention of him like fighting to swim 
or to keep himself to, to keep himself on the surface. There's no mention of that. In fact, the impulsive cry of his heart is back to Jesus. He says, Lord, save me. I, uh, I'm going from memory on this, but I think this was like 15 years ago. I was uh, at a church in Philadelphia, and I got to hear uh, uh, a pastor preach on this. It was Dr. Boyce. That's a name that means something to some of you. And uh, I don't really remember much about his sermon, but I do remember him saying this, and I'm sure I'm paraphrasing. It's not a direct quote. But he said something along these lines uh, uh, that Peter's cry to Jesus is as much an example of faith as him getting out of the boat and taking steps toward Jesus. That when Peter was in danger, his impulsive cry was directed at Jesus as as much a revealing of his heart as anything else that he did that night. That's the cry. Like, that's our cry. When we feel like we're sinking... When we take our eyes off Jesus, what was Peter's problem? Certainly he became afraid, but Jesus says that your fear comes from your doubt. Your doubt that I was powerful enough to protect you. And yet, Peter's cry was, save me. And just as Peter put his eyes back on Christ and asked Jesus to save him, I want you to look at Jesus saving Peter too. I want you to see what Peter saw. How did Jesus respond to his cry? Did he make make Peter wait? It says no. He immediately reached out and took hold of him. Listen, look look at Jesus. And when you look at him, I want you to look at the strength of his grip. Jesus is not letting go. He doesn't say anything. Until he, has G- until he has Peter firmly in his grip. And when Jesus grabs a hold of you, he doesn't let you go. Until he's got you back in the boat. And the wind has ceased. And I say all this because there's much, there's much that we see in the world around us that can create doubt in our hearts that God is really that good. That he is really that powerful. That he is really that willing to renew the world in its entirety. And here, one of the things Jesus is telling us is that it's less about our grip on him and more about his grip on us. That Jesus is the one who actually holds on to us. There's a pastor named Joe Novenson. Some of you might have heard this illustration before, but he, he used to like to talk about the way Jesus shook hands. Okay, In a normal handshake, what do we do? And then one person lets go, and it's broken. And Joe used to like to say that when Jesus shakes your hand, he doesn't just grab your hand, but he grabs your arm. So that even when we slip, he's still holding on. That's the picture in this passage, is that Jesus, when he grabs a hold of you, he is not letting go. He loves you so much. And the thing that's amazing about all of these stories of doubt that you see in the Bible is just how God responded to each one of them. He responds with incredible kindness and gentleness and patience 
and leads his people along to greater faith. How did he respond to Abraham and Sarah when they laughed at his promise? What did, what did he do? He, he made good on his promise. He didn't scold them. He didn't, he didn't pull his promise back saying you didn't believe enough. But he actually gave them what he promised to them. How did he respond to Gideon when Gideon threw his fleece down, testing God? Well, God, I don't know, maybe you can use this word. God humored him and encouraged him. And led him forward, and God made good on his promise that there was nowhere Gideon would go where God wouldn't be with him. How did God respond to Thomas? He said, Thomas, come here. Feel the scars on my hands and put your hands in my side. And then he said what? He said, stop doubting and believe. Jesus said, stop it. How are we going to do that? Well, I think it begins for you and for me. This is something we want for ourselves, but it begins for you and for me with doing what the, the disciples did in the boat that night. What does it say? It says they worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. Jesus comes into the boat saying, I am. And the story ends with the disciples saying, you are. Jesus says, I am. And we say, you are. That's what worship looks. Jesus says, I am. And we say, you are. And we, we might say, I am weak, but you are mighty. I feel alone, but I know that you are with me. I am tired, but you have steadfast love that never runs out. And you are resilient. And you will never leave me. This is who you are, how we train our hearts to stop doubting and believe. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, I want this for me, and I want this for these friends, but we are weak, and we hear these things, and I pray that you would build us in a in a, in a resilient confidence that you are who you say you are. That you would build us in trust and strengthen us for this walk of faith. Tell us again how you are with us at all times and in every way. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.